Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. A recent New York Times report describes the existence of multiple so-called floating Guantanamos that the U.S. Coast Guard is operating in the Pacific Ocean. Coast Guard cutters intended to capture suspected drug smugglers in international waters have become prisons for detainees. Some of the suspected smugglers have spent months chained to ship decks by the ankle, exposed to the elements, fed starvation diets, and forced to use buckets for toilets, all while waiting to be transferred to the U.S. mainland for prosecution in U.S. courts. The report notes that detainees are held in this legal limbo for weeks or months while the ships continue patrolling. Ultimately, when the detainees end up in the U.S., most face criminal charges. Only at that point are they formally arrested. International maritime law permits the Coast Guard to engage in what prison legal news refers to as, quote, a pattern of kidnapping and human rights abuses, unquote. In Connecticut on July 1st, a new law will go into effect granting transgender prisoners the legal right to be housed according to their gender identity. Connecticut is the first and only state to enact such a law, which ensures the right of transgender prisoners to undergo searches by officers who share their gender identity. The law also requires prison staff to address transgender prisoners according to their gender identity, using the inmate's preferred pronouns, and permits transgender prisoners to purchase commissary items they think are appropriate for their gender identity. Transgender inmates can't simply declare their gender identity. They have to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria or possess an identity card that matches their gender identity. This week, we're returning to the topic of carceral capitalism. We interviewed the poet and author Jackie Wang in episodes 89 and 90 of KiteLine. You can access those on our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. There, Wang discusses the relationship between the growth of municipal debt and the emergence of fine farming and other ways to extract money from communities of color through ticketing by police and court fees. After a brief introduction on her inspirations behind this book, both in her own life and in her research, we now hear Wang reading the concluding piece to Carceral Capitalism. She says that she wants to use poetics as a way to denaturalize prisons. Wang says, quote, I think of poetry not as a practice of writing in verse, but actually as a mode of thinking and being in the world, unquote. Now here's Jackie reading The Prison Abolitionist Imagination. One of the pieces that became one of the beefy pieces in the book was about predatory policing and police departments and court systems using fees and fines as a way to generate revenue, to fill in revenue gaps. And so this is something that was brought to the public's attention after the Department of Justice investigation of the Ferguson Police Department. So after Mike Brown was murdered, the Department of Justice was like, okay, we'll do an investigation and see what's up with the Ferguson Police Department. And they found that the financial manager of Ferguson was in correspondence with the police chief telling him that he needed to use the police department to fill a revenue gap. And basically, after the 2008 housing 
market crash. This created um, a lot of fiscal problems for municipalities across the country, especially places that were reliant on property taxes and sales taxes as a way to generate revenue. And so when there were these huge budget shortfalls, they're like, okay, we'll just use the police and use the courts to extract money from people. So I started to write about this. When people think about policing, and I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir in, in this context, but I'm not um, always in a context where there is this um, critical analysis of the police. But even the question of what police departments do and how they should be reformed, this is something that I, I talk about with my students now. My students will say, well, if there were, was community policing, maybe that would fix the problems with, the, with these rogue police officers and it will foster trust in authority, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look structurally at what the police are do doing and if you look at the you know, political economy of fees and fines, you realize um, that actually there are structural reasons why um, the police are harassing people and extracting from people. And while I was writing this book and finishing the book, my older brother, who was given a juvenile life without parole prison sentence when we were teenagers, had a resentencing hearing in Florida. So this was about a year ago. And I had written a piece about juvenile life without parole sentences and also the biopolitics of juvenile delinquency. So while I was finishing the book, I had to kind of go back and update um, some of what I was writing and, and thinking about because a lot had changed um, since I had written the pieces actually right after I wrote the piece about juvenile life without parole sentences, there was a Supreme Court case, Montgomery versus Louisiana, that determined that people who were given ju mandatory juvenile life without parole sentences were entitled to a resentencing hearing because they determined that the Miller versus Alabama decision applied retroactively. So that actually affected my brother's case. And while I was putting the book together, I also wanted to include some of the autobiographical dimension as well. The late Mark Fisher once famously said that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. The same could be said about prisons. It is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine a world without prisons. And yet the modern prison as it currently exists in the US is a fairly recent invention. Florida, which now has one of the largest prison systems in the U.S., had no physical penitentiaries at the end of the Civil War 
and had to create its penal system from scratch. Yet at this historical juncture, prisons have become thoroughly naturalized. Imagining and working towards a world without prisons, which is the project of prison abolition, would not only require us to fundamentally rethink the role of the state in society, but it would also require us to work towards the total transformation of all social relations. A project as lofty as this is easy to dismiss as unrealistic, utopian, impractical, naive, and unrealizable dream. But what if, instead of reacting to these charges with counterarguments that persuasively demonstrate that the abolitionist position is the only sensible position, we instead strategically use these charges as a point of departure to show how the prison itself is a problem for thought that can only be unthought using a mode of thinking that does not capitulate to the realism of the present. Can the reenchantment of the world be an instrument that we use to shatter the realism of the prison? What follows is a series of questions, conversations with revolutionaries dead and alive on dreams, death, the struggle, and the phenomenological experience of freedom. There are moments I want to enter. Will you follow me there to the place where the breathing walls quietly exhale a low freedom song? One, a dozen roses versus the police state. In From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, Kianga Yamata Taylor writes, quote, in the hours after Mike Brown's body was finally moved, residents erected a makeshift memorial of teddy bears and memorabilia on the spot where police had left his body. When the police arrived with a canine unit, one officer let a dog urinate on the memorial. Later, when Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden, laid out rose petals in the form of his initials. A police cruiser whizzed by, crushing the memorial and scattering the flowers. The next evening, McSpadden and other friends and family went back to the memorial site and laid down a dozen roses. Again, a police cruiser came through and destroyed the flowers. Later that night, the uprising began, end quote. I think about how the people gathered after Mike Brown was killed, how they made a makeshift memorial on the blood-stained spot in the road where he had been murdered by the police state. What do I see in this encounter? The will of the people butting up against the police's desire to destroy to crush all public expressions of grief. The police's show of force is unnecessary, compensatory. They want us to believe that police cars will always crush rose petals. They tell themselves that their uniform and the power that backs it makes them invulnerable. 
not like the rose petals arranged in the shape of MB. Erase the memorials, erase the flowers, the people will still rise up. That night, an uprising bloomed out of the ground where the memorial flowers had been crushed. I once read an article about the dreams of dying people. There was a former cop who couldn't stop having nightmares about the people he had violated. He told a hospice nurse that on the job he had done bad stuff. Tormented by his dreams, he gets stabbed, shot, or can't breathe. Eric Garner's last I Can't Breathe circles in time to haunt the officers who take the air out of the world. The cop died with so much regret. The conscious mind of the police officer may be sure of its correctness, but the unconscious mind knows it has done terrible things. The trampling of the memorial flowers is an act of repression, but what you try to blot out and refuse to integrate returns with greater vigor. If I ever met the officers, I would tell them, before you die, you will encounter the lives you took and violated. You driving around in your steel enclosed fantasy of invincibility. You who must desecrate memorials to prove to yourself you are strong to hide this weakness of imagination, a police cruiser scattering rose petals. What was it you tried to crush there? Was it a way to blot out awareness of your own death? And yet every time you tried to destroy the memorial, the people returned with objects that bore the memory of Mike Brown. You tried to force the people of Ferguson to forget. The people returned with a will to carry the memory into the streets. Two, the prison is our shadow. In a hypothetical conversation with his jailer, Mahmoud Darwish, a Palestinian poet writes, quote, you, not I, are the loser. He who lives on depriving others of light drowns in the darkness of his own shadow. You will never be free of me unless my freedom is generous to a fault. Then it would teach you peace and guide you home. You, not I, are afraid of what the cell is doing to me. You who guard my sleep, dream, and a delirium mind with signs. I have the vision and you have the tower, the heavy keychain and a gun trained on a ghost. I have sleepiness with its silky touch and essence. You have to stay up watching over me, lest sleepiness take the weapon from your hand before your eye can see it. Dreaming is my profession, while yours is pointless eavesdropping on an unfriendly conversation between my freedom and me." End quote. The poet prisoner haunts the guard, 
who becomes a prisoner of his paranoia. The profession of the poet is dreaming. The profession of the jailer is to contain. The poet is the one who makes the light. The guard is the one who takes it. He who lives on depriving others of light drowns in the darkness of his own shadow. Will the ones who built the nightmare also drown in it? The prisoner knows the true meaning of freedom, while the guard knows only how to police this freedom. What does the jailer give up when he becomes an instrument of the state? Does the jailer remember what it means to love, to grieve, to rub the muscles of freedom or borrow the bird's example? They cannot annihilate what we carry in our hearts and minds, this vision of an elsewhere or the memory of a bird. How many poets and revolutionaries discovered freedom in a cell? Three, entombed flowers. In 1917, the revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg wrote to her comrade Sophie Leibniz from prison, quote, Yesterday, I lay awake for a long time. I dreamed to myself about various things in the dark. How odd it is that I'm constantly in a joyful state of exaltation without any particular reason. I lie there quietly, alone, wrapped in these many layered black veils of darkness, boredom, lack of freedom, and winter. And at the same time, my heart is racing with an incomprehensible, unfamiliar inner joy, as though I were walking across a flowering meadow in radiant sunshine. And all the while, I'm searching within myself for some reason for this joy. I find nothing, and I must smile to myself again and laugh at myself. I believe that the secret is nothing other than life itself. And in the crunching of the damp sand beneath the slow, heavy steps of the centuries, a beautiful small song of life is being sung, if only one knows how to listen properly. At such moments, I think of you, and I would like so much to pass on this magical key to you so that in all situations, you would be aware of the beautiful and the joyful, so that you too would live in a joyful euphoria as though you were walking across a multicolored meadow." End quote. In the dark of the night, you traveled to a colorful meadow and with your powerful imagination, wove that meadow into a cloak of stars that you imparted to your comrade Sophie to wear as a shield against everything terrible. What bloomed in your mind that night as you lay quietly listening to the boots of the sentries crunch the sand? You were sharpening your perceptive faculties so you could tune in to the exalted frequency. You were sensitized by your cell by the boredom weighing you down until the pressure of the darkness gave way to an understanding 
of the deepest mysteries of what it means to be alive, of the connection between desire and politics. I think of your fate, of George Jackson's fate, of Fred Hampton's fate. The state must know when the universe gives birth to a true revolutionary. It must see in them a light it must extinguish lest their spark find and set alight the divine spark in us all, which would spread until the world as we know it has been upended. Alone in your cell, your body became pure nerve. You were perceiving everything. It made you giddy. The inner joy you felt against the bleak backdrop of the prison. I imagine how you passed your time there, studying political economy and botany, writing letters to your comrades, assembling your herbaria, preparing for the revolution, getting lost in the flowers of your imagination. You were the secret. You were the principle of life itself. You were a tree they had to cut down. Four, the stars seen from prison. In September 1971, the prisoners of Attica rose up, took the prison, and carved out a small space of freedom, a temporary liberated zone from which they could observe the stars. Heather Ann Thompson, in a history of the Attica uprising, writes, quote, despite the sense of foreboding, there were moments of levity and for some even a feeling of unexpected joy as men who hadn't felt the fresh air of night for years reveled in this strange freedom. Out in the dark, music could be heard, drums, a guitar, vibes, flute, sax, that the brothers were playing. This was the lightest many of the men had felt since being processed into the maximum security facility. That night was in fact a deeply emotional time for all of them. Carlos Roche watched as tears of elation ran down the withered face of his friend Owl, an old man who had been locked up for decades. You know, Owl said in wonderment, I haven't seen the stars in 22 years. As Clark later described this first night of the rebellion, while there was much trepidation about what might occur next, the men in the D yard also felt wonderful because no matter what happened later on, they couldn't take this night away from us." End quote. In the cracks of the prison, something bloomed. A field of wildflowers imposed on a night sky. Blood was coming. Joy and dread mingled there, infusing the air with a powerful sense of rapture and uncertainty. What exalted frequency was discovered that night, then lost when Governor Nelson Rockefeller ordered the police to put down the uprising. Blood was coming. The new world never arrived. 
how terrible it must have been for W.E.B. Du Bois to realize he had mistaken dusk for dawn, that darkness would follow and not the radiance of a new day, his people's strivings rendered crepuscular. The dream of liberation collapsed in a heap of bloodstained rubble. Blood was coming. The drumming would not last. The prisoners would be punished for daring to glimpse the stars. Will those who have constructed this hell ever wonder what was it all for? The subordination of all life to these systems that hem us in. Why cover the sky? Five, the dialectic of dreaming. Asada Shakur, a black revolutionary who lives in exile in Cuba writes, quote, dreams and reality are opposites. Action synthesizes them, end quote. Before Asada Shakur was liberated from prison, her grandmother and family came to visit her, bearing a dream. You're coming home soon, her grandmother said. I don't know when it will be, but you're coming home. You're getting out of here. It won't be too long, though, she went on. I dreamed we were in our old house in Jamaica. I was dressing you, putting your clothes on. Asada's grandmother was known for her prophetic dreams. They came when they were needed, but it was ultimately the responsibility of the recipients of the visions to make them real, not only by believing in the veracity of the prophecies, but by acting so as to give them flesh. When Asada returned to her prison cell, she could not help but dance and sing. She writes, no amount of scientific, rational thinking could diminish the high that I felt. A tingly, giddy excitement had caught hold of me. I had gotten drunk on my family's arrogant, carefree optimism. I literally danced in my cell singing, feet don't fail me now. I sang the feet part real low, so I guess the guards must have thought I was bugging out stomping around my cage singing feet, feet. When we act in accordance with the prophetic dream, the dream comes to directly constitute reality. Six, the rhythm of revolt. Sometimes I don't know what to tell you or how to end. For some time I've been thinking about how to convey the message of police and prison abolition to you. But I know that as a poet, it is not my job to win you over with a persuasive argument, but to impart to you a vibrational experience that is capable of awakening your desire for another world. A couple of years ago, I saw the Black Arts Movement poet and activist Sonia Sanchez speak. I was moved by the way she paused whenever she experienced vertigo and spontaneously started singing as a way to find her rhythm after nearly passing out. In a haiku, Sonia writes, without 
your residential breath, I lose my timing. Our bodies are not closed loops. We hold each other and keep each other in time by marching, singing, embracing, breathing. We synchronize our tempos so we can find a rhythm through which the urge to live can be expressed collectively. And in this way, we set the world in motion. In this way, poets become the timekeepers of the revolution. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.